Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I've been working on this show all day, and here it is. I can't wait. David Wheaton's going to come on in just a minute. And Dr. Rebecca Ree is coming on after David. She is a Hebrew scholar that finds the most amazing things in everyday novel items, and she's going to talk about an experience she had when her mama bear came out, which was very interesting. And before she hung up the conversation, she said she was told Thank you for the manner in which you have expressed your concerns. A lot of parents have just yelled at me. We're going to learn something about that, but we're going to start with David, and we're back in our study of Exodus, and I am loving this today as we continue our title of our series called How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. Today we're going to uh, cover chapters 5 through 7, so let the plagues begin. David, welcome. Good to be with you today, Bill. Yeah, let's go a little review before we jump in. Um, Let's start with the most important point from last time. Yeah, we covered Exodus 3 and 4 last time, and and for those who didn't hear the last conversation we had, here we have Moses, you know, the the key figure in in Exodus here, uh, who was, by the way, raised in the palace of Pharaoh. We won't go over that, how that happened again, but anyways, a Jewish man, they were oppressed in Israel or in Egypt. He was raised um, just very unlikely by Pharaoh's daughter, but he had to flee the country when he got 40 years old because he had he had killed an Egyptian who was trying to attack one of his countrymen, his Jewish countrymen. He went to go live a long way away in Midian, and he was there for 40 years. And uh, during that time, he went from being a prince of Egypt to becoming a shepherd, of all things. He got married and had two sons. So he's way, way far away from Egypt and sort of obscure, out of the out of the equation, out of the conversation anymore back in Egypt. But all of a sudden, as he's out uh, shepherding the flock, God appears to him in a literal burning bush on Mount Sinai, where Moses would someday receive the Ten Commandments from God. And he, from this burning bush, uh, God tells Moses that he's seen the oppression of the Jewish people in Egypt, and, he, and he's going to rescue them out of Egypt, and he's going to take them to the promised land. And here's the news for Moses. Moses, you're going to be the one that has to go back to Egypt to go lead them out. Now, Moses doesn't like this idea, Bill, very much. He, he objects to, to God's call to lead the people out of Egypt. The question is, why would he object? I mean, God is promising him that he's going to have success on, on this mission. But, uh, you know, God told him, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. And he's told them that you're going to be successful in this. He's promising success, but still Moses objects. And he says, you know, he actually objects five times. He says, you know, who am I that I would be able to do this? I'm inadequate. And he says, what shall I say to the people when I get back there about your name? Well, what if they don't even believe me? Or what if they don't listen to me was the third objection. Or what about my lack of eloquence? I'm not a good speaker. They're never going to listen to me. I don't speak well. And then finally, his fifth objection is, just just send someone else, okay? Well, finally, in the last one, God gets angry with him. He, he agrees, though, to, to bring Moses' brother Aaron uh, to be kind of a, 
a, a team, a pair that Mo, Aaron will do the speaking and and Moses do the great signs. And just our our, our time ended last time that the fact that after these objections, uh, he meets Aaron on the way back to Egypt, and there's this beautiful kind of um, meeting and a beautiful result before all the confrontation that we're going to talk about today between Moses and, and Pharaoh is that the people believe uh, Moses that he's been sent from God. The, the elders of the sons of people, uh, of the sons of Israel, agreed and, and accepted Moses as being sent from God, that they bowed low and worshiped the Lord. And this should be our response to when God commissions us and we're on our way of doing his will, this is the response. So he was well-received back in Egypt. So he probably thought things were going to go really well now that he's back and that Pharaoh's going to let the people go, but that's not exactly what happened, as we'll talk about today. Mm-hmm. David Wheaton is continuing his teaching on Exodus. So if you have your Bible available, open to chapter 5. And David, let's dig in. How does Moses and Aaron's first encounter with Pharaoh go? Uh, in short, very badly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's just, it's worth reading the first two verses of chapter five. It says afterwards, after this great reunion with, with the elders of Israel and the people of Israel, and they're all, they're all on one page here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ask Pharaoh where you are going to, you're going to lead us out of Egypt. So what, what, here's what Moses do. They came and they talked to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, they say to Pharaoh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. So this just sets up the the, the tenor of what's going to take place for many chapters going forward here, that Moses and Aaron continually come back to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord. And whenever whenever you hear that in Scripture, you should do what the Lord says, but Pharaoh is having none of it. <laughs> He's going to resist, let my people go, no way, they're not going, because Pharaoh thinks the Jewish people are his people. He thinks he owns them. But God says very clearly over and over again, let my people go. They're not your people, they're my people. Let them go. And Pharaoh's response, Bill, is, is, the, is the typical way the non-believing world responds to God. There, there's the pride. Who is this Lord? There's the mocking. Who, why should I obey his voice? There's the ignoring of, I, I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. We should not be surprised as Christians when the world responds to us this way, because you know what? They just don't know the God of this universe. And so they're, they're full of their own God is themselves. And so they're not going to listen to some other God that they don't even think is a God. And so eventually, not only does does Pharaoh say, I'm not going to let them go, but he actually makes the lives of of the nations of Israel even more difficult. They were already oppressed. They were already enslaved. They were already having to work so hard to build the cities in Egypt for Pharaoh and so forth. Well, the human reasoning that Pharaoh thinks, well, these people must be just be lazy. I mean, Really? Why do they want to go and worship? What what point is that? I mean, worship is an optional thing, not a, not an essential thing. Where where have we heard that recently? COVID nineteen, that worship isn't important. Why would you even want to do that? Um, but that was Pharaoh's response. He just felt like if someone wants to go worship, they must they must not have enough work to do. That, mm. That's not an essential part of life. And so he imposed heavier labor on the nation, the the, the Jewish people. He, he had the, the, the foreman, the, the Jewish foreman of, the, of the, the people who were working. They were punished and beaten. 
And you can see how this thing just started out terribly right from the get-go. All right. So, David, Moses and Aaron, this encounter, the relationship started a little rocky. Uh, who, is there anyone to blame? Yeah, so if you think about it, this this first interaction between Moses and Pharaoh goes really terribly. He, he tells them, thus says the Lord, let my people go, and he's not letting them go. And not, not only is he not letting them go, but he's imposing more work on the nation of Israel, making their lives harder mm-hmm. instead of giving them straw to make bricks. Now they have to go find straw themselves to make brick, and their quota is still the same. And then the Jewish foremen are being beaten and punished, and this wasn't happening before. So the reaction of the of the of the of of Moses' brethren, his nation of Israel, was like, well, since you came back, now our life is much worse. They said, you have made us odious in mm. Pharaoh's sight. It says in in uh, Exodus chapter five, verse twenty one, uh, you you've put you put a sword in their hand to kill us. I mean, th- this is going sideways, even before the plagues have begun. And so Moses was just, I think, in pretty much complete discouragement at this point. It says in verse 22, he said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever even send me to do this? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I mean, Bill, I know you were a tennis player, and this is probably a bad comparison, but this is like starting out a match in in the finals of a tournament. You know, you lose the first set 6-0, and you're down 3-0 in the second. And uh, you're almost out of the match before you even start. You're you're discouraged. Mm-hmm. And this is how Moses was. It's like things are going terribly, and he had all these promises of success by God, but it doesn't seem like that's the way it's going to work out. And David, I appreciate the fact you used the word odious. I don't hear that word very often, and I, and I like <laughs> that word. And for those of you who don't know what odious means, it means extremely unpleasant or repulsive. That's right. Yeah. All right. Um, so if God is going to be delivering Israel, why did they have to go through all of this? Yeah, you think that God had just promised, remember all the objections that Moses gave, you know, that's not, I'm not an, I'm inadequate, they're not going to listen to me, this is not going to go well. God kept on answering him by saying, no, this is going to go well. You're, you're going to lead them out of Egypt. Matter of fact, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. They're going to be giving you silver and gold and things before you go, and he is. I'm going to lead you out with a mighty arm but yet it's not starting out looking that way. So you think, well, why didn't God just go from sending Moses back to Egypt to saying to Pharaoh, I'm leading them out, and Pharaoh just say, fine, go ahead, and you're gone. Well, God doesn't work that way usually. He uses the circumstances of life to do his sanctifying or or saving work in everyone who's involved in the situation. So you have someone like Moses— for Moses, this was a time of sanctification in his life. It was a time of refinement, that he needed to learn a greater trust in God and not be objecting to God all the time, but to learn to trust God. For the, for the nation of Israel that he was leading out, they needed to learn to be reacquainted with this God. They needed to learn obedience again and, and to trust this God. Remember, they were in bondage. They, they had sort of forgotten about God. They thought, God doesn't care about us. Here we've been enslaved in Egypt for so many hundreds of years. This is not going well. Who is this God? So they needed to learn something about obedience and trust and be reacquainted with God. Pharaoh, Bill, had to learn about who this God was, that there was going to be judgment. This God is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment for those who mock and disobey and go against him. The Egyptian people also, God was working in them as well. He was teaching them that this one God was greater than any of their other gods. They worshiped the sun, they worshiped the Nile River, they worshiped all these false things. 
they needed to know that this God of the God of Israel was the, the true God in the world, and they, can, they could have salvation through him. So all these circumstances going on, that thing's not going well, and you're going to see how each of those categories of people are being touched through the plagues, through the confrontations. These trials are painful, but God was going to use these trials just as he used trials in our own life. We don't like them, but he uses them for our good in his glory. Mm-hmm. We're getting smarter about the book of Exodus, thanks to David Wheaton, my guest. And if you have your Bible open, it's we're on Exodus chapter 5. We're going to go 5 through 7 today, and we're going to continue on our study of Exodus for months to come, which I'm excited about. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with David in just a minute. My guest, you can go to the ChristianWorldview.org to learn more about David and his amazing ministry, powerful radio show on weekends on Saturday, and his writing, his books, and his speaking. It's all there at thechristianworldview.org. Placed right between Genesis and Leviticus is the book of Exodus, is what we're talking about today. And we're on chapters 5 through 7, if you have your Bible out. And David, I think we all need to be regularly reminded of God's character and purposes. I think this is a good we, book to dis, to be reminded of. Really, and that that is the point of the book. How this how this awesome God, you know, leads in a most unlikely way His people out of Egypt to the Promised Land. And and, and as we were discussing before that first break, there, you know, things didn't go well. The the first sort of introduction there with, with Moses and Aaron to, to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. Well, he did not only doesn't let them go, but he, he imposes greater restrictions and punishments and greater workload on them. And so, you know, this, this first command of God is completely re- rebuffed. And, 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 you know, the people of Israel are mad at, at Moses and Aaron now, and, and things look kind of hopeless before they even start. I mean, again, we haven't even got to the plagues yet, and they're already started, things are starting to fall apart. And so Moses is discouraged, He's wondering what's going on, and this is where in Exodus 6, as we, we, we turn the chapter here from Exodus 5, that God quickly reminds Moses of his character and his purposes, and it's really because, you know, we're always compared to sheep in the Bible. Sheep are easily and quickly wander off and get lost and are kind of helpless and hopeless, right? And God is reminding Moses of who he is and that he is our only hope. He, he reminds Moses here in Exodus 6 of that he's going to be successful. He's guaranteeing victory. He reminds Moses of who he is. He reminds Moses that he does see the groaning of the sons of Israel. He's not blind to this. And then he makes these seven I will statements you know, t- to Moses to encourage him in, in Exodus chapter 6. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, I'm going to compel him. It's going to be, get ugly here. He will let the people go. And then he gives these, these, these I will statements. It's, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. I will bring you up to the land. 
I'm paraphrasing this now, going quickly through it, but I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And, and Bill, this is exactly what we need to be reminded of when we are in difficult times of our life, who, who God is, his character, his promises to us. And this is why it's important for everyone listening today who, who professes to know Christ, to believe in Christ, to, to take in God's Word, because after all, it is God's Word. It's His direct Word to us every single day to hear His Word preached. This is where we find out who God is. This is where we're reminded of His promises. This is where we are spiritually fed and nourished. When we don't do that, then we're going to be discouraged. We're going to get thrown off by the circumstances of life. Life is hard enough as it is, even if you're in the Word, but we need to be taking in that word on a regular basis to be reminded about God's character, his nature, and his purposes. That's very comforting to me today, David, so I appreciate that message. You're, you're, uh, you're very timely with this encouragement. Good. I'm yeah. glad to hear yeah. that. We need, it, we need it every day. I know, we do. Sure. I do. So when I think about Pharaoh and his hardening heart, help me walk through that. Is that something that, uh, I mean, who is responsible for his hardening heart? Was it himself or was it God? Who right. Who did it? Well, I'm glad you asked this now because we, we turned the page here again. Now we're in Exodus 7. We've gone from 5 to 6 to 7, and all of a sudden we see another recurring theme. Not only is it let my people go, that's repeated, but we see this, this issue of sometimes the Bible says, I will, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Ten times it says that, and then ten times it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Mm. So this becomes a recurring theme. So so which is it? Is it is it Pharaoh hardening his own heart, not letting the people go? Or is it God hardening Pharaoh's heart? And therefore Pharaoh's not responsible for hardening his own heart. This this is this this conundrum. And this keeps on coming up. As a matter of fact, we passed over the first mention of it in Exodus chapter four, a few chapters ago, when God says to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh, all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And he says it again here in the chapter we're talking about now, Exodus 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But as I mentioned, other times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So how do you explain this? Because this is an important thing between God's sovereignty over the circumstances and the people in this world but there's also the issue of man's responsibility as well. And I'll just say this. I mean, if we could understand how this dynamic plays out, God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility, we would have the mind of God. And that's why we can't fully understand it. And so in this case, I, I did read a, a, a pastor's from a study Bible on this particular passage to talk about how this hardening you know, who did it? Is it God hardening or mm -hmm. is it Pharaoh hardening his own heart? And so if I could just read a couple sentences, I think it it's helpful uh, to kind of get an idea, although there's not a clear answer, again, because we don't have the mind of God. But the, the pastor writes, the interplay between God's hardening and Pharaoh's hardening his heart must be kept in balance. Ten times the historical record specifically says that God hardened the king's heart, and ten times the record indicates that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The Apostle Paul uses hardening in Romans 9 as an example of God's inscrutable will and absolute power to intervene as he chooses, yet obviously never without loss of personal responsibility for decisions or actions taken. And the last sentence is this, the theological conundrum, because that's what this is. 
posed by such interplay of God's acting and Pharaoh's acting can only be resolved by just accepting their record as it stands and by taking refuge in the omniscience and omnipotence of the God who planned and brought about his deliverance of Israel from Egypt, and in doing so also judge, judge Pharaoh's sinfulness. Now, it's sort of a mouthful, but hopefully you, you get the, the gist of that, saying that you just have to trust that God's omniscient, he's omnipotent. This is perfectly worked out in, in, in God's mind, you know, as far as when he hardened Pharaoh's heart and when Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh's responsible for the decisions he made, and yet at some point, God, for his purposes, hardened Pharaoh's heart to accomplish his own will. So I don't have a great answer for you. It's both. It's like two mm. train tracks. They're both running the same direction. They're both truths, but they're both—we can't fully understand that tension in our limited human minds. Mm-hmm. In Exodus 7, I think it's around verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, work a miracle. Yeah. And so it seems like God is going from commands to miracles. Yeah, he is. And and just real briefly, the first one was a command, let my people go. Well, then he's going to ramp it up from there. Mm-hmm. And he's going to ramp it up, and they're going to do these miracles, or Moses is going to, th- or Aaron's going to throw down his staff on the ground. The staff becomes a serpent. A miracle takes place. But then Pharaoh has his own magicians come in, and their and their staves are able to be thrown down and turned into serpents as well. But then, of course, Aaron's staff swallows up their staff, showing the superiority of God. And so he ramps it up to miracles from just a, a, a mere command to a miracle because th- this is a this is a question of God actually giving Pharaoh more time to go along with it before the plagues come and things are going to get really ugly. So God is this patient and merciful God. He first gives a command to let my people go. Pharaoh disobeys. Now he ramps it up, takes it up a level and says he performs miracles. This is who you're dealing with a God who can take a staff and turn it into a snake. And by the way, if you don't do this, here's what's coming, these 10 plagues, which are going to completely destroy you if you don't let my people go. Hmm. And the question is, why are our human hearts so stubborn and hard that we just don't respond first to the commands of God, that it takes ramping up to God doing a miracle, and then eventually God's judgment through the plagues? That's like the million-dollar question, David. It is. It is. We have we have hard hearts. Yeah, we do. Hearts. Yeah, stubborn, rebellious hearts. Now, here we are at the first plague, and we're out of time. That's be a perfect place to start next time. Yeah. So when we continue our study of Exodus with David Wheaton, when we we're going to talk about the very first plague, and we're going to continue on from there. David, thanks so much for doing the show. I love the study. It's so fun to do this with you, and um, I'm looking forward to the next time together. Well, it's a pleasure to do it with you as well, Bill, so Thanks. thank you. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. He is the uh, uh, at the christianworldview.org. You can go learn more about David there. His radio show is on Saturdays on some other network, I, I believe, not this one, but uh, he's awesome, and you should listen to it. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, Dr. Rebecca Ree, who's a Hebrew scholar, she's got this incredible knack for making observations about inanimate objects and then applying a biblical lesson. Today she's going to talk about a nightlight. I can hardly wait to find out what that's about.
Welcome back. My next guest loves words. She loves them so much that she decided she wasn't even going to go to medical school because she loved words that much. And she started to write when she was young, and she's still doing it today. She went to Yale uh, and studied there and then went on to Boston uh, College, Boston, Boston University, and got her Ph.D. in religion and literature. And she is my guest, Rebecca Ree. She uh, writes a blog that I find incredibly um Interesting, and I, I say head over to RebeccaRee.net. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E, and learn about Rebecca. She's uh, always a delight to have on the program. Rebecca, welcome. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So now I always look forward to your latest submission, and you've got something about the nightlight, and I want to hear about that. Okay. So um, the latest blog that I wrote is about um, a rather simple nightlight that I bought online for a while, a while ago. And I want to talk about how that very ordinary nightlight taught me a profound lesson about how to respond when we are being provoked by circumstances in our lives. Which probably is everybody um, at this point, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about you, Bill, but I find that as I get older, I'm not um, quite as accommodating as I used to be. I'm not quite as go with the flow. Mm-hmm. I guess if you were to put it in uh, as a very visual term, I'm less like a Twizzler and I'm more like a Kit Kat. Like I'm more likely to snap. <laughs> okay. Um, I like it. I get that visual. So, um, yeah. So things in my environment can really get to me. And a recent family trip that we made um, to a water resort really drove that point home for me and got me thinking and pondering about, you know, how do we as believers, as spiritual creatures, um, respond well or better when we are being provoked by our circumstances? So my husband and I are older parents. Um, We had our eight-year-old when we were in our 40s, and believe it or not, after 17 years of marriage, we had a whole other life before he came into our lives. He's our child of promise. And um, having children turns everybody's life upside down. But I think we feel that that uh, we felt that upending more acutely, not just because of our age, but because our son has autism, as I've shared previously on your show, and he requires so much care from us. So um, we basically made it our mission to get him out in the world and give him the same opportunities that typical children enjoy even if that means extra work for us, because we can never anticipate exactly how he's going to respond to his environment. And he might be okay. He might have a complete meltdown. We have to do a lot of extra planning, but we feel like, you know what, this kid's worth it. And we need to give him every, um, every experience, every opportunity that we can. So one thing that we do know that our son likes is to play in the water. And so um, we had a little vac- my husband had a little vacation time, and we decided to revi- uh, revisit a water resort that had reopened after the COVID shutdown. And his favorite feature in that whole place is a wave pool. And I don't know if your listeners can but, uh, picture that, but it's this huge pool that generates these wa- really, really big waves. And so I spent quite a bit of time standing guard over him, and he basically had his little life vest on, and he was bobbing up and down and giggling in the churning water. And um, 
he's growing up, so he doesn't like me to be all over him. So I was about probably 10 feet away and, you know, watching him have his little good time. And guess what? I got splashed. And then I got splashed again by all sorts of kids who were, like, running amok all around me. (laughs) And I wanted to turn around and shriek at each little offender. And I really had to stop and remind myself that this is how kids are supposed to act in water parks and that I need to just get a grip on myself. And, and remember, you know, you're an older pair, parent, so just grin and bear it. You know, get a grip. This is how they act in places like this. So that was, you know, one form of provocation that I was noticing about myself as we went to this water park. And then there was the hotel room itself, more provocation. So my husband, I mean, my, my husband has um, uh, reserved a room with a bunk bed set up, and my son just loved that. Um, but I was quite miserable on our first night because the place had lumpy pillows and thin sheets, not to mention the fact that there was a very, like, musty smell in the room. And, you know, it's a big resort and not a lot of staff. I know, you know, I felt like they probably didn't have a lot of people to, you know, work and clean up the place since COVID. So I wasn't going to get a lot of house housekeeping out of them. And so, you know, it was, I was pretty provoked by that setting. It was just not comfortable. And so God bless my husband. You know, the very next morning after that first night, he locates a nearby uh, superstore where we could go and buy some extra bedding and an air purifier. And God bless my mom and the two friends that I contacted to pray for us through the rest of our trip. And together, these things, Romans 8.28, work together for good. And I could slowly feel my claws retracting and my (laughs) vampire fangs were receding. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And some blessings started to come into view that, you know, when I was seeing red, I didn't see the blessings. But when I started to calm down, I started to see some blessings. And, you know, some amazing things happened. My husband and my son, they tried a super slide together. Wow, they, you know, I never anticipated that. And they, then my son um, hit the jackpot in one. They, they had a little arcade. He hit the jackpot in a game, and all these tickets started spilling out. That was quite an amazing experience too. Um, and then I saw, um, heard, you know, I was kind of people watching, and all these different languages were being spoken around me. And, and I was just observing how there there could have been so many divisions around us, representing different political parties and different. Um, countries, but we were all there doing the same thing, which was trying to give our kids a good time. And we were all comfortable around each other. And that was an amazing little miracle that I was seeing and and really felt blessed to be in the midst of. And, you know, we got to try out different ethnic uh, food places for dinner. And the last thing was we just got lots of downtime in our hotel room to hang out together as a family. And that was, you know, a blessing in itself. So, Again, when the provocation level came down, then I was able to actually receive um, some little treasures that were, like, actually planted in that vacation. So on the last day, we, you know, packed up. My husband, you know, got everything into the car. He took my son with him. And I always do that one final sweep of the room before you leave just to make sure nothing's left in there. I was 100% sure that there was nothing left in there. But as I shut off the light, Something revealed itself to me, and lo and behold, there's the automatic nightlight I brought from home. It's the kind that as soon as it's in the dark, it comes on. When it's in the light, it, it turns off. Mm-hmm. And there it was. It was shining in the darkness as soon as I turned off the light. And so I reached out my hand into the shadow, 
and I unplugged it. And I felt like as I was carrying it out of the hotel room that it was a message to me. You know, it's last minute illumination that that was a, a, a message to me that I could have so easily passed over. So I just sort of tucked that away in the back of my mind. So let's skip forward a few weeks. And it's time for special needs summer camp for my son, who has never attended anything like that before. And so what I did, because he had no background in that, was I hired what's called a para. And we call the Holy Spirit a paraclete, someone who goes alongside. So a para is basically a special companion to buddy up with a child to help them do their tasks and keep a close eye on them for their safety. So, you know, things seem to go well with um, my son and his para. Um, And then one day she came home and reported that there had been a very close call with a peanut butter sandwich that had been brought home by brought to the camp by another child. And my son is deathly allergic to peanuts. Um, And the situation really had not been handled well um, by the staff that was there. So as I listened to the para describing what was going on, my blood started to boil and like with many women, there's a mama bear inside my gut who emerges when anything threatens my bear, my boy. And that bear was like leaping to the forefront. You know, I was provoked. <laughs> I was ready to attack that camp director. I was ready to write an outraged email, you know, speak some choice words, make some veiled threats if she didn't act exactly as I wanted her to in response to the situation. But then something happened by the grace of God. And I was reminded of that nightlight, of something shining in a dark space where I would find it. And I also remembered my husband, who was doing all that he could to comfort me when I was in such a provoked state. And I remembered the prayers of my loved ones um, that who I could reach out to and count on. And so I could just recall all the treasures I was able to see around me at the resort once I had calmed down and absorbed the grace that was extended to me. And suddenly, I could see the camp situation a bit more clearly. I saw that camp director's heart, her desire to provide a fun and safe space for special needs kids who might not have anywhere else to go. And I saw her her persistence, knowing that she had been ministering to to what Jesus would call the least of these for many years already. And something broke in me, or rather something bent in me instead of snapping. And when we did speak on the phone, I calmly explained the extent of my son's allergies, and I expressed the hope that we might be able to solve the problem together. And it was a productive conversation. And surprisingly, she said at the end, you know, thanks for the manner in which you brought this up to me. Most parents would have just yelled at me. And I felt so convicted at that point because I had been so close to doing just that. Um, So I was really touched. And again, I just felt like God had been in the middle of that situation. And that's what it's all about, right? Making room for God to speak into a situation in a way that's far better than we might in our own ramped up self-driven state. Making room for God to speak into a situation. That I like. A lot. Yep. I yep. just wrote that down because I'm a note taker. 
Uh, Rebecca, let me take a little break. We're talking to Dr. Rebecca Ree, and we're talking about her latest blog. If you want to sign up to get her uh, blog sent to your email, you can do that at RebeccaRee.net. That's R-H-E-E. After a short break, we'll be right back. Dr. Rebecca Ree, we're talking about uh, one of her latest entries into her blog. She's a great writer and just a guest that I love having on because some of her insights to the most common objects uh, keeps me thinking and lodges in my head. And sometimes that's what it takes to be reminded of a great biblical principle. And we'll probably get to that by the end of this uh, interview. But Rebecca, as we're talking about uh, the nightlight, I want to hear more. Well, we're going to get to that biblical application right now. Sweet. So um, the Bible actually, I love this one when this happens. The Bible actually gives a very vivid example of this principle of God speaking into a situation in a way far better than us. Um, And it's found in the Joseph story in the book of Genesis. Um, And I want to say before I get into that, in in the Hebrew Bible in general, whenever a character speaks, and I'm talking about direct speech in quotations, it's meaningful. There are no superfluous speakers in the Hebrew Bible, okay? And, I mean, look how the Bible opens it up. Opens up. Let there be light. You know, I've heard someone say you'd be hard-pressed to find a culture that reveres the power of the spoken word more than the Hebrew. Um, and I did my doctoral work on the Joseph story, and I did crazy stuff like counted every word that he ever speaks in the whole 14 chapters. And um, I actually believe he's a stand-in for God and a bookend for God in terms of speaking in Genesis, but that's a whole other talk. What I want to say just for now is that whenever Joseph speaks in the story, things inevitably happen, both for good and for bad. So in his early life, if you recall the story, he, has, he, he shares his dreams with, those, with his brothers, and those dreams are so inflammatory that they sell him into slavery. And then if that weren't bad enough, Joseph eventually finds himself in an Egyptian prison, and he's dealing with dreams again. But this time, he's not their source, but their interpreter. So Pharaoh's cupbearer also ends up in prison, and he has a dream, which Joseph correctly interprets. And this is what Joseph says after he interprets the dream. And just listen closely. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing wrong that they should put me into the pit. You know, so on the surface, Joseph's request sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, after all, he may not have another chance to plead his case. But really what struck me as I was studying this, you know, this direct speech was, how many times Joseph refers to himself in this little quotation? It's seven times in the Hebrew and the English. And here's the principle that I want to get into. And what I found as I studied the Joseph story was the more Joseph inserts himself into his speech, trying to take control of the situation, the worse things go for him. And the more he recedes 
from his own speech and puts God forward instead, the better he does. And this is proven by what happens a few verses later. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position, but the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So all that I and me didn't produce the, the result Joseph wanted. So Joseph has to molder in prison two more years before he gets another chance at release, and this time he gets it right. You know, as you recall, Pharaoh has dreams of fat cows eating skinny cows and um, bad corn eating good corn, and Joseph is called, pulled up out of prison, and he responds with a 165-word monologue that is God-saturated rather than self-saturated. So when Pharaoh first sees Joseph and says, I heard that you can interpret dreams, Joseph's first statement is, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer. So you hear that total deflection from the self? Mm -hmm. It is not in me. That's the first thing he says. Then when he actually interprets the dream, he frames them as a direct communique between the God of Israel and the pagan king of Egypt, which is really quite incredible when you think about the the history between Israel, Israel's God, and uh, the Egyptian kings. Um, twice he says, God has revealed or said to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Um, and he also says, the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So you hear when you're reading this um, interpretation, it's God, God, God. There's a total of mention of God five times in Joseph's um, interpretation. And that's quite a lot. Um, and what's the result of all this God-honoring rhetoric on Joseph's part? Pharaoh says, since God has shown you all of this, there's none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. So by hanging back and letting God take center stage, Joseph not only breaks free from jail, but he becomes a great emancipator himself. And he not only saves all of Egypt from salvation, he saves his own people, his own family, the nation of Israel. And he gets back to that hurtful, toxic, you know, knot of pain and suffering that, that you know, that was going burst to burst the 12 tribes apart that never got resolved. He gets to go back into that place where it's what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's where, that's where all the God rhetoric gets him. So maybe some of your listeners, Bill, are feeling highly provoked right now. Maybe you are so tempted to fire some outraged words like grenades into a situation, you know, or maybe you just want to put your hands on that situation and control it by some self-driven means. And I would say, you know, just like me standing in that wave pool with all the kids splashing me, <laughs> this is the time to stop and take a breath, you know, to look for the light in the darkness and to remember that the times where someone was kind and patient and understanding with you. And if you're older, you have the benefit of many years of God's history of allowing that to happen in your life, you know. You, you've got the benefit, your yearbook, you have many pages to, you know, flip through and say, ah, I remember that and that and that and that. That gives me reason to show that to somebody else. Um, so this is the time to 
hang back on the me and the I rhetoric and let another person plead their case while you listen. And that might help you grasp the big picture that's in play and what role God might have for you in it. And it might be quite an amazing role that you could never fathom. And I would say, for me anyway, this might be the hardest part, waiting on God to show you and perhaps show you through a very unlikely source like Pharaoh was, that he sees you and he's going to plug you in where you belong so that you can shine light in a shadowy corner that desperately needs it. Um, And in the meantime, don't be shy about gathering that support for yourself to endure that crazy splashing because, you know, that too is part of dwelling in the light and you need that for yourself. And it's also going to contribute to some wonderful memories of grace if you let it. So great wisdom as always, Rebecca. And when I think of the idea to take a breath and let others talk, let them plead their case, not always trying to race to make my voice be heard or hear my position or understand what I think. You're saying uh, this might be the spirit working in you and God might be plugging you in somewhere where he needs that light. Yes. Well, if you know, um, if you look back on Joseph's life, even when he was being very successful in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife, um, you know, made her move on him. Even though he, he he gets kudos and points for resisting that move, when you count out the words, his references to himself, you know, nobody in this house is higher than I am, not even you. You know, how can I do this great sin and sin against God? It's great that he's like being a moral person, but he still hasn't grasped the principle of don't be in front of your speech so much. Because the result of that is, you know, she gets him and gets him thrown in prison. So, again, it was just amazing to me that towards the end of this, the story, Joseph gets it. Like, when he names his two sons, he names them after God. You know, God has made me forget the affliction of my father's house, and God has made me fruitful. You know, so his speech gets just so God-saturated, and he seems to understand that that's the way to go. He trusts that God will give him the authority that he needs and give him the purpose that he needs um, if he just trusts and hangs back the way he's supposed to and watches, watches and waits. Rebecca, as an older mom, and you've admitted to that, so I'm just repeating what you Uh, said. That doesn't doesn't insult me. (laughs) I know, I know. And you talk a little bit about, you know, if you're feeling creaky and cranky. um, Yes. And I find that to be uh, true where your, uh, your being provoked can come easier if, if you're in that mindset or if you yeah. are tired or if, you know, I'll, I'll give you free counseling on being an older parent in a splash wave pool. If you're getting splashed by kids, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> that's kind of what happens in those things. But I get it. I get it. It's just like that passage we've been talking about out of Galatians lately on the show is bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear with one another. I think, yeah, we always have to be aware of being with other people and that that maybe sometimes are difficult or annoying us or whatever. Yes. we And I had to keep saying, okay, they're not miscreants. 
their children. Exactly. <laughs> and I had to say, and this is what they're supposed to do. This is their space, not my space. And yeah. then again, bearing another one another's burdens means I called up my friends and said, I'm going crazy here. Would you pray <laughs> for me? Would you help me bear this burden? Because yes. I'm going, you know, stark raving mad here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you did the right thing because you could have just recoiled and then felt sorry for yourself, but you reached out to your community and said, I need help. Exactly. And that's a great reminder for all of us because we are going to find ourselves in those times of feeling provoked and we're going to think, what do I do next? And instead of blowing up or um, doing something that you would regret, because I think we've all said stuff that we would like to take back, important to take a deep breath and just uh, just relax. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca, always a pleasure. Thanks for be- coming back on the show. I love the story of the nightlight. It's a good one. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. It's always just so amazing that you let me come on. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the show. You're you're a delight. Thank you. Yep. Dr. Rebecca Ree has been my guest. Her blog is RebeccaRee.net. That's R-H-E-E. We'll take a break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.